Thank you all for coming. On behalf of the Programs Committee, we are pleased to introduce and very excited to introduce our moderator today. We have a great program for you. Adam Pines is a rising star. If you don't know Adam, watch him. He's going to go, he's going to drive Chicago real estate for the foreseeable future. He's a power. He's doing great things and he's got a great panel for you all. So I'll bring up Adam Pines with Madison Rose. Cool, let's get started. So we've got an exciting conversation planned today. Um, thank you everybody for being here. I think first things first, we should introduce the panelists. I'll let you guys do so. Let's just do name and uh, company and 10 words or less on what you do. Hi, everyone. I'm Sheila Conforte. I'm a principal at SCB um, Architects, and we uh, are really excited to be here talking about revitalizing our city and how design can be transformative. I'm Dan Maslowski with Cushman and Wakefield, and I'm a tenant rep broker. Um, but I tell most people that I manage expectations and manage risk. Amy Preston with Preston Design and Construction Consulting. We are development advisors, owners, reps, project managers, and um, just here to support this panel. <laughs> I'm uh, Jeff Braden with the Prime Group. We are a development company uh, working primarily in downtown Chicago. And these days we are mostly working on adaptive reuse of a lot of the buildings in the Central Loop and LaSalle Street Corridor. Cool, let's get going. So I think first things first, with all that's planned for the loop, uh, kind of one of the big glaring topics, how important is public funding to uh, not only the conversions, but just in general, the overall revitalization of the loop? And we can go out of order here, so whoever wants to jump <laughs> on this. I think I can jump on that one. Um, well, you should. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd say public support is essential for redevelopment of these old buildings. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean public funds like TIF, but there's a lot of other programs that are, you know, legislatively enabled, such as historic tax credits, low-income tax credits, um, PACE, uh, EB-5, um, stuff like that, that that really just harnesses private capital. Uh, those programs are absolutely essential. Um, I think over the last 15 years, we've built about 1,200 hotel rooms in the, along the South Street that uh, today probably generate about 100 million of room revenue and maybe 40, 50 million of other ancillary revenue. And not a single one of those would have happened without, uh, without those programs. Um, and that's not really public funding, I don't think. Th those are more, that's private capital that uh, is going to a, you know, a legislatively, uh, you know, enabled, uh, uh, program. Uh, TIF is essential, though, for some things that where there's, uh, you know, other 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 portion, other things like uh, like low income housing. Uh, I don't I don't I don't see a lot of that happening in the loop um, without without that level of public support. Well, I mean, given your project that you're doing for Google <clears throat> and the both and for the uh, state and the city. What has your experience been like with the new administration? Is it just starting? Is it just on? starting? Yeah. yeah, just starting. Are you, yeah, there's. Are uh, you optimistic? Oh, we're definitely optimistic. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, th I think that the LaSalle Street Reimagined uh, program, you know, uh, is is a very well thought out program uh, by the previous administration. So I do I do think it'll, it'll stick around. Um, I, I mean, we can't let you know these old these old buildings just kind of sit fallow. Um, we have to accomplish these other priorities, right? We have to be able to, you know, redevelop them, uh, make them productive, you know, generate, you know, low-income housing, lots of apartments. Um, those those things are um, very important for the city. So, yeah, the, from what we know, the administration has not made any decisions, but we're optimistic that uh, that, that the program will stick around. Anybody else on the topic? So, uh, kind of along the same path, uh, retail in the loop. Um, not overwhelmingly good news on that front over the last few years. What's gonna catalyze the next good thing as far as retail goes in the loop as it is so crucial for all the other things we're gonna talk about today? Well, we need to get people back to work because that's what retail serves. And I think it's been a real challenge. You know, I think the days of, uh, you know, now all the 
the retailers are, are operating leases, you know, versus, you know, actually paying rent because, you know, you've promised your tenants in these buildings that there's going to be retail services, and it's kind of hard to make that work when people are only coming to work three days a week. So I think that landscape has forever changed, and as a result, tenants' operating expenses are going up. So um, it's a challenging time, but, you know, I think, you know, I think that's part of the whole dynamic of what work from home and the reality of that means is that you're also consciously saying, well, I'm not going to support my city and I'm not going to support those retailers. It's a whole ecosystem that that tenants, um, you know, and, the, and that culture need to remember and employers need to remember to support our downtown because without it, you know, weak downtown makes weak suburbs, means a weak Chicago. Yeah, definitely more people on the street, you know, more people uh, working in offices, staying in hotel rooms, staying in apartments. Um, and that, that will be a, 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 the most important thing. Our, the one very discreet data point I have on that, we have a hotel we opened about a year ago. We have a couple retailers in that building as well, one clothing store and one convenience store. Um, and both of those uh, retailers saw sales go up, right? I mean, they definitely saw a real improvement in performance uh, once the new hotel opened. And we're going to get at least one lease renewal out of that that would potentially have gone somewhere else. So it, it is all about getting people back back to work and uh, back downtown. I think too the conversation around you know new uses for some of these buildings that include mixed use. I think drive traffic during hours and days of the week that otherwise you know, retailers wouldn't be able to take advantage of. So to the extent that we can continue this conversation about bringing some residential to these areas as a means of really supporting, um, you know, the kind of population that you need to have thriving retailers, I think that can be part of the, the mix that, that makes it a more successful overall uh, venture. Circle K is certainly bullish on the Yeah, they are. <laughs> what is with the Circle K? I, uh, Am I the only person that's noticed that? Taking advantage. It's pretty sure. convenient. They're, they're ahead of the curve. Now's a good time to do those deals. Yeah. Obviously, no they're, they're watching from a distance. So, you know, on that same topic, do the tenants who, if, if you could have assumed that forever the draw was the, the price point and the convenience and the transportation access that the loop allows, do tenants still care? Is that still really part of the process for them? I think probably everybody probably has an opinion in some form on this. I think it's relevant. I think there's a checklist, and that's definitely on the checklist. I think that something that's higher on the checklist these days is the viability of the people who own the real estate that they're leasing from, right? And so there's some things that have moved to the top, but location, location, location has always been there. I think it will still be there. Um, convenience for your employees, uh, the, the type of building that you're in, those things are still relevant. Um, it's just that some of these things that used to be on the bottom are now shifting to the top as more sexy things, like people who can own the asset and honor the promises that they're making to people within the leases. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I think um, the, the loop is always going to be attractive to tenants and corporations for a lot of different reasons. One, you know, there's an probably an unending supply of Big Ten graduates that want to work in Chicago. That's where they come. They don't go to East Lansing or St. Louis or Detroit. Some do, but we're the draw. And, you know, we've looked at studies and, you know, if you start working in Chicago, there's a good chance you'll end up a large uh, majority do. And those younger people want a vibrant place to come to. And, um, and if, they want to live with their parents for the first year, which I probably would just to save some money. You need a good transportation system to get down here. So, um, you know, I, I think more than ever, it's, uh, you know, it's a great, vibrant, attractive place to be. But you're right, Amy, you know, it's, I would never hear on a tour, you know, you go to an Irvine company building right? and, and they and they tell you 10 minutes for first 10 minutes we're Irvine we're going to own this forever we have no debt we have a lot of money you never heard that you know pre because you presumed every landlord was kind of okay mm -hmm. but now it's really you know location is always going to matter economics are always going to matter but I think the two things that we see now more than ever in doing if you're going to do a long-term lease 
we're able to get incredible flexibility downtown in terms of contraction, termination, and multiple rights to expand. And, you know, the, the, you know it used to be hard to whittle down 20 buildings that have 50,000 square feet because there's so many great options in downtown Chicago. Now, who can pay the freight? Who can, who can put their money where their mouth is? So that the list gets a lot easier because if you're doing the right job for your client, you need a landlord that can uh, perform. So how, how many buildings are for sale or pencils down right now? We're going off script here, but on that topic, you know, there, there's this endless vacancy and how much of it is relevant is really the question. So there's probably over 20 or 25 buildings where you would have a big asterisk next to them on a survey and say, well, you know, maybe not yeah. this one. I mean, I've talked to leasing agents that represent different landlords and they'll tell you we'd like you to focus on this building because this is the landlord that can perform. You yeah. know, so it's, they're being transparent about yeah. the problems that they're having too. And, uh, you know, I remember back in the old days when Two Pru was a, a zombie building and, you know, Andrew Saywitz was still doing deals with six years of half rent abatement because they couldn't, didn't have any TI. So it can be done, but you need people with money and a reason to be there. But, uh, you know, there's, everybody says it's 50%-ish of, of uh, buildings that are uh, really in trouble with their, with their lending or their loan, and that's probably a, a decent number. Mm -hmm. So on, on the topic of mixed use, what other conversions are going to make sense besides residential? Because we, we can't just build 5,000 new apartment units in the central loop and call it a day, right? Or can we? I don't know. I, I, I think that we probably can. I mean, I wouldn't want to drop them all in in 2024, mm -hmm. but um, over like a normal development cycle, I, I think there's uh, there's room. I mean, look, that's uh, that's a year worth of delivery for the market. Um, you know, spread that out over five to seven to eight years, and uh, and it could make sense. And the reason is, I mean, the population downtown is growing. You know, the population downtown, uh, you know, just looking at it by itself, is more or less the fastest growing city in the United States. Um, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, right? I mean, we're, we're the, uh, the city that's closest to all the Big Ten schools. And we, so every single year, there's a flood of people um, moving to downtown Chicago. So I, I think apartments, uh, I think we could, we could develop quite a few. Um, hotels are obviously something that, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of success um, with. Um, you know, we've seen people who have succeeded with student housing as well. We've never done any of that, but it's definitely been something that succeeds. Um, but there's not, a, I mean, there's not a long list of other, other, you know, uses that are kind of economic uh, for, for buildings. You got to deal with existing conditions. You got to deal yeah. with zoning. I, I, I do think one interesting thing, if, if you don't, I'm a news junkie in terms of real estate and um, Golub at uh, the Burnham Center, 111 West Washington is, I think they're close to getting a deal done for like 70,000 feet for a vertical farm. Although in that building, I think it's a horizontal farm, but, um, you know, and with vertical farming, I think it's a really interesting use. And the, and the firm that's going there, they want to do 6 million square feet next year. So, um, and it, you, it's 350 times as uh, profitable as regular farming, and it takes 5% of the water. Mm -hmm. So it's, but you need a lot of power, which I think we have. So I think buildings that you need to make sure you have enough power to do it, but I think that's a really interesting adaptive reuse, and it's going to bring food to, again, maybe areas where we need more access to that. What about hotels? Is there room for them? Um, you know what? Uh, I would just say that uh, there should be a moratorium on other people building hotels. I mean, we'll, we'll, do some, we'll do some more. They're great. They're, they're great. They're very, very difficult to, uh, to, to get done, but they're, they're a great use for these old buildings. Yeah. So we've been through a version of this before, uh, 13 years ago, uh, 10 years before that, a few years before that. What's similar, what's different in comparison to past recession-type periods? It's not the same. It's people, right? It, people <clears throat> wanted to come back. They wanted a job. They wanted to get moving. And it's not the same right now. We're having a hard time getting that kind of collective community to come back and help Chicago thrive. Um, and 
you know, I, I just want to say, spread the word. Work is cool. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, it just, it, it's just not the same. It's, it's like apples and oranges. Um, people don't want what they wanted before, and that's hard. Yeah, uh, when I was at the Cornette Summit uh, last year in Chicago, um, this great woman from uh, HOK speak, and she's like, it doesn't matter if you spend $450 square foot on space. If, there, if there's only one person using it, mm -hmm. it, it's not worth it. So our number one amenity of any building or any office is people, is each other. So, um, you know, I read another interesting... Uh, article from a, a, one of our brokers down in Atlanta, and he came to speak here, and he was fascinated by his Uber driver because he was a tech guy, and he was lonely at home with his dog because his company wouldn't let him come to work, and he wanted to. And so he got an Uber job just so he could talk to people. <laughs> so, I, you know, I know some people love working at home with their dogs and cats, maybe not so much, but um, the uh, I'm a dog person. But, uh, you know, I think more than ever, we just need and thrive on each other. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, it's mind-boggling to me. I'm old school that when a CEO says we're going to come back to work five days a week, that that's news. It's yeah. just... In what world did you ever, you know, go to work and think that it was anything but? And I'm not sure why. Um, it's great. Flexibility is great. You should earn it. Um, autonomy is great. Uh, if you want to work from home, you should start your own business. Um, but if we don't want to realize the effect of what this will do to downtown Chicago or other major markets, um, you're fooling yourself. It's not a movement. It's actually a push towards something that's going to be destructive for a lot of other things going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm generally hopeful that, uh, <laughs> that there's going to be a, a, a real resurgence. Um, we have these uh, family friends. They're, I think, juniors at DePaul. So these uh, three or four girls were on the volleyball team there. So, and they all had internships um, this year at uh, you know, big, big downtown employers. One was at Northern, one was at CDW, and I forget what the other ones were. And they were absolutely thrilled with the idea of going in the office every day. Not every day, three days. You know? <laughs> but, the, but the idea of like being together with people and um, kind of working hard and you know, kind of getting through all the work that they had to do and getting recognized for it. Yeah. That, was, uh, that, was, that, that seemed to be really impactful to them. So... Um, I, I know, seeing that, I mean, we're in this weird time mm -hmm. right now, but I, I do think there's, a, there's an end to it. I don't know if, if it's still a 160 million square foot office market that's needed at that point, mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't think the, the answer, the alternative is 80 million square feet. You know, we're not, we're not 100%, you know, we're not 50% more than we need to be. Yeah. So from a, like a capital markets or liquidity standpoint, uh, is this at all similar to coming out of the last recession? where, you know, there, there were limitations and there was scrutiny, but did it at all resemble what we're looking at right now? I would say it's not very similar. It's, uh, you know, back in those days, uh, you know, there, there, were, there were always pockets of liquidity for office. I mean, office was considered an investable asset, um, you know, in 2010 and 2011. Today it's not. Um, it, it, there, it's, it's, uh, it's this weird thing. Office buildings, Class A office buildings in downtown Chicago used to be the, the centerpiece of, a, of an institutional core investment portfolio. And, uh, and today, the biggest investors are trumpeting the facts that they do not have any office exposure um, at all. It, it makes no sense. I mean, at the end of the day, office buildings and industrial warehouses, they're the only you know, two asset types, real estate asset types, that are a really good proxy for corporate credit. Right. And, um, and, and the fact that one of them is not investable at all is just mind-boggling. So that that is a that's a huge huge difference from uh, well, from twenty ten. Change that. Other than time, other than time, yeah, and people, yeah, and people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably probably time and people. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, the the end to the you know interest rate increases too. Yeah. You know, some level of stability. We need stability with the workforce. You know, we need stability in capital markets. And uh, then your clients, they can go out and look at buildings and say, we're ready to make you know this investment. Uh, for the next, you know, 10 years for our, for our people. Yeah. So we, we got a handful of things uh, we, we still want to cover, but we want to open it up to questions quickly here to see if there's anything uh, in the crowd. And take us wherever you want to. 
We're going to wait an awkwardly long time until somebody <laughs> asks a question. Yes. We're also going to make you use a microphone, so. Hi, <laughs> uh, thank you. Very interesting discussion. My question is about return to work and getting more people into the downtown business district. What responsibility, whether it's civic or morally, does the state, the county, and the city have in this? In other words, to make sure that those employees are coming back four to five days a week. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Well, I will say that typically when norms change, there's a market leader, right? So, and I use the Google example all the time, but when Google went open office, everybody in real estate was like, we're going open office, right? This is what you've got to do. And from a real estate perspective, that made sense because you can put a whole bunch of people in less square footage and that had a, a direct effect on your P&L. I think people are looking for a market leader on how to decide what does this mean for us? And there hasn't been one who created a strategy that is working. Some people have mandated, nobody's really coming, right? Some people are tracking badges, not really working. And so could the city or the state be that market leader, right? And do a, you know, a, a think tank with their people and model the behavior? Yes, that would be great because I think we need a market leader to show people how to do this. And why not it be the people who believe in the city, who work for the city? So I think it's important. I mean, you know, real estate taxes downtown um, are about a billion dollars. And, and the city's budget is a billion dollars, $16 billion. So. You know, almost 10% of the city, if, you know, if this new mayor wants to do all these great programs that he has his, his heart set on, a lot of it has to come from the big office buildings downtown. And the way that you get people back to work is to make sure people feel safe mm -hmm. and people can get to and from. So, you know, safety and transportation, I think, are key. So... If I'm leading, you know, that's what we need from our, mm -hmm. our government and our leaders. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of corporations have hit the pause button. I know there's other tenant rent brokers in the room. You know, there's, you know, when a new administration comes in, it's like, what's the future hold? Mm -hmm. And so I think people need to feel that stability. I don't know how it's done. But um, I know that has to be the focus, and that needs to be uh, done as soon as possible. Yeah, I agree with you guys. Government's got to lead by example. Yeah. I mean, you know, Google's um, commitment to the loop is, is impressive. And, you know, they're ahead of the curve because they knew Fulton Market's going to fill up, and they need to have other places for their people to work. They obviously have taken a long-term bet on Chick downtown, the loop, and and so is your company. And, and Yeah, I mean, the uh, and this is where government should lead, right? We have these great assets. Um, you know, we have all the downtown infrastructure, right? The high-rises that we are either great office buildings or great conversions to other uses. The transportation, the L, the proximity we have to all these things. I mean, that's what Google saw right. in, in the loop. They said, we're going to be bringing people back to the office. We need to be able to get them there. You know, over over a third of their people take the L in. And uh, when when they started to hear that their offices were probably going to move to the loop, they had a, they had a very positive response to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, every, everybody is uh, kind of looking forward to that. But but that's I mean, that, and that's where government should lead. Right. I mean, highlight what the what the great infrastructure is that we have, what the great assets are that we have. And, uh, you know, bring, you know, bring their people to, to bear. But to your point, you want to be feel safe getting on the train to get to work, right? Because it's there, but... But did you feel kind of unsafe perfect. when you got on the train before? Maybe a little. Like, it's not something new that just invented itself, right? Like, I just... Like, it, we have to keep those things up, and you should in a city, And but your city should also promote the thrive of the... I mean, not... Selfishly, it's commercial real estate world, but, like, the thrive of the downtown area, whether it be real estate or or things like that. But Google was, again, another market leader that did something innovative and took a real dog of a building and is going to do something with it, which is fabulous. Oh, it's a <laughs> it's a <laughs> we don't do enough to celebrate the, 
the good news stories in the cycle right. because it's it's not it's not all bad in there. There are market leaders that are making these decisions, but it's almost you you, you can barely hear about it because it's it's this inundation of negativity. Yeah, and I think part sense. of our job is yeah. to is to you know look at the other side of what's happening. Chicago does such a terrible job with our own narrative, and yeah. you know I blame the press. You know. I would just love Cranes to do a story on a tenant that's committing long-term to downtown right. Chicago and stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All you need to do, yeah. just good news just today. One, just one. one. As opposed to, yeah. <laughs> and the other 80% is, yeah, but here's all the other bad things happening. Yeah. That's like, yeah, it's that's like, here's, here's like a great story, <laughs> but you're all going to die anyway. I, I think I've read that quite a few times in, in Cranes. <laughs> so I do think it's about the media as much as, as government as well. That's a big part of it. Anything else from the crowd? Nope. Oh. Is there a good formula for some of these uh, uh, market leaders or corporations with uh, a heady group of uh, board directors or whatever? Is there a, a pattern where they're addressing the inevitable Monday, Friday off mindset, um, but maybe, maybe you know, going to use Sheila about design or going to you who have mass about uh, how we're going to see this through or any I think part of the challenge is that we're still sort of in it, so we don't have a lot of data to draw from. And I think a lot of these conversations, and, and certainly, you know, company leaders like to fall back on some real tangible, measurable results. And that's one of the challenges that we're always up against. You know, how do you measure? And you know, this was even a pre-pandemic conversation. How do you measure? Um, why it's important for us all to be together. How do you measure, you know, design changes that lead to increases in productivity or bringing people back to the office, sort of, um, you know, augmenting the culture of an organization and wanting to, I mean, yes, you can look at stats on retention or depending on the type of business you are, maybe it's easier to, to measure productivity. It's, it's, it's hard to uh, point to a lot of measurable things at this point. Uh, again, like I said, because we're still sort of evolving and living through it, to do anything more than have conversations with and have a lot of educated guesses and discussions um, around, you know, what what is uniquely important to a certain organization. So does that mean you're just designing with more flexibility? Absolutely, because we can't, I mean... We don't have a crystal ball. You're about to move your space. So, uh, we sure are. So are <laughs> I've been gonna, asked many times. How are you going to change where you are now and what you're going to be in the future? Well, I think part of it is understanding what our pain points have been, where we are now, and how the way we work with each other has absolutely changed and how the pandemic has changed how we work with each other and how do you integrate how we're integrating technology into our day-to-day -day practice totally different as a result of the pandemic. And so then how does our office space respond to that and, you know, come to terms with the fact that we do want everyone to come back to the office, but a lot of our clients are hybrid and they're not traveling to us as much. So how do we build space that's going to support, you know, reinforce all our culture because we do think it's incredibly important for us all to be together. Um, we're all at the office four days a week. And if you come by on Fridays, you'll see quite a few people there too. It is important to us. And we were one of the early people in our industry to make that decision from a leadership standpoint and really sort of, you know, we design office space, live our values, you know. Right. Well, like Sheila said, with the measurable, um, I, I think there was always a formula, right? There was always a, a, a pretty standard formula. You need offices, you need workspace, you need conferencing, you need collab. Um, and I think that formula is very confusing right now for a lot of people because they don't know what that formula means to them anymore. And, and so now it's really bespoke for each company because you have to take a look inside and think about how your people work, right? And before, not that it was never about the people, but it wasn't, right? We do offices, we have workstations. These are support people. These are people that have titles. This is where you conference. And so now you have to think about all these individuals in there and whether that really suits them because if, they feel better working at home, that formula doesn't work, right? And so it's a little bit harder to answer, which is why it's taking a little bit longer to solve. I think another good tangible data point is really the impact on retail space. 
So, you know, forever prior to 2019, you, you could look at centrally located retail and it was almost a shining light in the rent roll of the building where you're getting 25 net in the office floors where you're getting 75 net on the first floor, probably from really good credit. And that was just there. And, you know, today you'd rather not have a 7-Eleven next to a Dunkin' that's just going to service the neighborhood in a mundane way. And if you can have something that activates the building and activates the ground floor and is a real amenity to the building so people are compelled to take that train ride in, uh, you're going to do that, except that guy's not going to pay real rent because that group knows that they're getting two to three meals a day, three days a week, and that it's not a seven-day-a-week business. So instead of being a 70-net deal, you're probably actually losing money on that space every month as the owner, but you don't stand a chance to lease meaningful space in the high-rise of the building in the absence of that deal in the first place. So that is, there's only a couple real case studies of that actually happening so far, but with many of the buildings that we alluded to before that are in st some state of change right now, the long-term strategy for those buildings is with that kind of bared in mind as, as context for the ground floor, at least for a while. I'm uh, Ivan Boone with Savills, and a question more geared towards the end users. I think it's universally accepted that three days a week is kind of the norm. It's also true that most of those three days tend to be Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I wonder if anyone's willing to take the lead to mandate that one of the three days be either Monday or Friday to then balance out the utilization during the week as opposed to having it concentrated in the center of the week. We're there. We're yeah, there Mondays. Right. <laughs> so. If you run the company, yeah. do, you, do you want those to be the mandatory days? Right? Because you got to be there, too, if that's the rule. I'm going for gold. I'd ask yeah. for all five. Yeah. <laughs> and you can choose which five. <laughs> you choose five. <laughs> I think part of the issue, though, is that middle management and, and management like it this way to a degree in a lot of cases. Um, I think that's that's kind of, you know, a glaring inevitability of the whole thing is that it feels kind of good to not need to come in on Monday morning. I, you know, I, I think every company, I think the companies that have had challenges is when it's one voice saying you're going to come in, you know, X days. You know, we represent the American Medical Association. They have 21 different vertical groups within their organization, and they let 21 leaders decide who comes in and when they come in. And there's... Some of their groups that like Fridays because they get stuff done because they've been traveling the week and that's when they come in. Some like Monday because they're going to travel the rest of the week. So, again, I, I think I think the good news for, for someone that makes their living off people needing space or people designing space or landlords is that it hasn't really, some, it hasn't resulted in that much of a re reduction in footprint. It's just what are you doing within the footprint, right? Exactly. Yeah, um, and you know, again, I would say we're really across the board with organizations that are starting to dabble in, you know, what if we do some sort of hybrid model, but nobody knows whether that really works yet. So there's still a little gun shy to, to not, what is our plan B? What is the, you know, how do we design space flexibly, flexibly enough so that if and when we determine that maybe this doesn't work, we still have seats for everyone. You know, the last thing you want to do is have more people that want to come in than space to give them because, you know. And so so it, the way we're designing within the footprint is definitely changing. Um, but, you know, Monday versus Friday, I think the other thing that's a little challenging, and I think a lot of organizations lived through this in the early days of the pandemic as we were starting to come back. It was like, okay, we're going to have an A group and a B group because we have to maintain these radiuses. And Tuesday is like the B group comes in. And Friday, and it was just chaotic. And there was this lack of, you know, consistency about who was going to be there. And so you sort of lost that, you know, we want teams to be together. We want there to be this, this energy. And it just got a little confusing and forced and strange. And so I, I don't think anybody wants to land there again. So I, I think it, as it relates to this group, everybody's, you know, kind of a almost a service provider in some form or another. So uh, how, how are developers, landlords, corporate occupiers adapting to the changing needs 
right now? Uh, and, and how are you guys kind of seeing that manifest itself in your guys' work? Well, I, you know, I think all landlords have really stepped up their game uh, in terms of the amenities they provide for their uh, tenants. It's incredible, you know, what the experience. And that's, again, a draw that to come back. It's like I start working, I got a phone book and a, and a desk. So it's, you know, how it's evolved is really just incredible. And But what's interesting about that is I think the jury's still out. Have they gone too far? Because they had to do these things, but how much are they really being used? How much is the fitness center and the conference have being used? So again, I think that's still out there. I mean, I actually might think if they're really asking their tenants what's important to them, maybe they don't need as much amenity space because if you reduce the amenity space, then your operating expenses go down. So there's a benefit to that. Um, but I, again, I mentioned it before, I think the flexibility that landlords have had to show to adapt to the needs of the long-term space needs of their clients is, is the biggest change. I, would, I think we've seen. But I would agree with you. I think that the story for the last couple of years was um, spec suites, amenity centers, build it, they will come. And that really, that, that gained some momentum um, because people who needed to make a decision, who sat a little bit long on leases but had to do something, these things were available to them. But I think 24 is going to be a little bit more like that. Do we need this space if no one's there? Should we focus on operating expenses and preserving the assets so that it can live, right? Um, and so I think we're going to see that as we move into 24. Um, and because they're prepared. The buildings that have been doing it has, have spent money. Like Dan said, they have flex. They have done a ton of great stuff. But if it's done and you're, it's just sitting there, right, then they're done for now. And so I think 24 is going to be a little bit of a ride the wave and make sure the building is operating as a class A or class B or whatever class you're in and, and hope that you weather the storm and be ready for when people come back to work. I mean, Adam, I'm sure you see that. I, I think landlords are more gung-ho about building spec suites than ever right now. And I mm -hmm. think that's in response to the 9 billion square feet of sublease space that are on the market, which yep. they're going to inherit back yep. and they're going to have to gut because nobody's going to be able to reuse that, and that's why people don't go to subleases. It's like buying a home and living with somebody else's taste in the yeah. kitchen and the bedroom. So <laughs> that's why spec suites appeal to everybody, right? And so that's where I think the money is gone that have it, and I and that's what, and I think that's in a big response to the sublease market because we need to compete with that versus more than anything. But now they're sitting on inventory. Right? There's floors of spec suites in these buildings. They're sitting on inventory. And so unless there's some movement, they're not going to just keep dumping money into that formula. Right, So we're good, I think. And I think they're going to wait for leasing to pick up. And there needs to be something else that moves this forward. The landlords have responded. Um, and now somebody else, people, need to respond to. Right? We need, we need a little bit of push-pull on that. How do we keep the historical architecture preserved amidst all these changes, though? Which is critical. We're Chicago, after all. I think there's some great case studies of historic buildings that are newly relevant. I mean, they're, they're an important part of our city and building that fabric. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to keep pointing to residential like, examples, but our firm has done, you know, a lot of work in that space. And... You can, you know, look at the Tribune and Belden Stratford and examples like that of beautiful buildings that are very much, you know, part of Chicago history and how you can give them new life and make them much more relevant to either today's worker or um, urban dweller. And uh, I think that th those are great stories. And, you know, we're working on some office buildings also landmark buildings that, um, you know, if you, you can lean into the history of it and, and give it new life and new relevance and still be attached to that original story and that sense of history and romance that made it great, there's a way to tell that story today. And I think those are some of my favorite projects, actually, that we're working on. Not everything has to be brand new all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have great. We have, I mean, we have these great buildings in Chicago yeah. that uh, may not be relevant today as office buildings, 
Um, but they're, they're great buildings. And there's, you know, like you were saying, right, there's, a, there's an honesty to them, right? The, the, the part of the story that they tell of the city. Um, and we have like a billion dollars of examples of, of reinvestment in these buildings that's given them completely new life. They're all like 100 years old. You know, there's investment made in them and they're set up for the next 100 years. Um, and uh, I, I think in general, um, they, the end users do very much uh, appreciate that story. Um, we did this one building, uh, Residence Inn in the Loop, and uh, tax credit projects. So there was uh, some historic stuff we kept, um, specifically these old dumb door handles that had the McCormick family crest on them. <laughs> and it was like, I don't know, like $100,000 of additional cost to put them into rooms. And, and I fought so hard against that. I was like, what an absolute waste of money. Um, so we put them in rooms. You can't even use them because they don't even meet code. This for to open and close doors, but we put them in rooms. And uh, oh, and there were these mail slots too that were in the old office building. People used to put mail in. Um, dumbest thing in the world. But I guess you love them. The hotel guests love them. Yeah. They 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 love just the uh, the, the reflection on the history of Chicago. Uh, so stuff stuff like that, I, I think, uh, can be very vibrant. You know, and very very relatable to uh, to the, to the future use here. So ESG, kind of on the same topic. A uh, huge item in other progressive places, primarily Europe, for example, who's really adopted it as a central part of the strategy. Uh, how does this really play into the next few years here? Are people talking about it? Do tenants care? Are owners willing to go out of their way to accommodate it and advertise the fact that they've kind of got it at the forefront of their mind? What does it mean? What, what is market leader Google saying about? Um, well, I mean, definitely adaptive reuse is about as, uh, right. <laughs> you know, about, about as ESG, you know, E as you can as you can get. I mean, that's, you know, tons and tons and tons of steel and concrete and embodied carbon that's, you know, staying in place and not going back into a landfill. I mean, it's a, it's a big part of, of how they looked at, uh, at the loop. I mean, they were looking for access to transportation first and foremost. Um, but they were also looking for the ability to, you know, be part of a resurgence. And they said, you know, look, we, uh, you know, we kind of created Fulton Market. We're going to move and we're going to do that again somewhere else. Um, and the third part, though, is, is definitely the ESG story. Being in adaptive reuse is very important to them. Um, and being, I mean, it's going to be a lead platinum uh, building, Core and Shell, the only one in Chicago, um, all, all electric buildings. So everything about that is a big part of their broader you know, corporate push to uh, be carbon neutral by 2030. So, so again, you know, important. I think corporations have to embrace that. I mean, it, it's strong leadership. Um, Do you ever hear it brought up? If you're, you know, if you're, if you've got 10 buildings in a matrix, does anybody get demerited because they're not there on ESG? In, in my experience, not really. What about the? I think like, it's considered. I mean, I, I think, like you said, the decision matrix is pretty big when you're when you're making a move, and all things being considered, that that depending on a company's corporate culture and the values of that particular organization, yeah, absolutely. Like there are the, the Googles of the world. I think you know to the extent that. We can keep those values in mind as we're designing any project, whether or not it's important to that particular tenant or client or not. I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to be good corporate citizens and keep those things in mind and help support businesses that are of that same mindset. But um, have I seen it be a huge decision maker personally with the clients that we've been working with? Not yet, but it's discussed. It just depends on the scale of it, right? In the developer's world, it costs money. There's a premium to it right now. And so um, if you think about it, when I was building in Austin, Texas, it's a concrete market. And if you do a 50-story high-rise out of concrete and you want to go carbon neutral, you have to ask your concrete subs to go after and get like an EPD and do something really special with the mix. And that costs money. <laughs> and so when you're trying to underwrite something and things have to make a return or do something smart for people to invest in, some things have to go. And so it has to also make sense. And so sometimes it, it's just not there yet in terms of a premium. It's like when lead came out, mm -hmm. such a premium to build lead. Is it a premium to build lead anymore? Maybe platinum, but yes. not lead, right? Like people are designing with lead now. Right. Materials responded for lead. And so that took a decade. Mm -hmm. It's going to take some time for ESG to make sense 
in the real estate world, in the development world, but is there a way we could do it on a smaller scale and communicate that out to the market and not talk about it so big and so broad? Because there's not a ton of Googles who can make that move, but maybe as a smaller corporation, you can do something smaller that shows that you are invested in it, but this is what we can do, right? And so I think the education around it needs to be a little bit more mainstream. So what's, what's more ESG favorable? Building a new high-rise that has every modern technology and is incredibly efficient and, you know, checks every box you could possibly ask for from an operational standpoint or like what they did at the old post office, for example. I think that's, that's the big question is, you know, if, if you're a corporate occupier and you want to really check this box, who in which category does it actually make more sense to fall into? I think they're both valid, yeah, right? I think they're both good things. Yeah. So it just depends on what you have a taste for. Um, I do. I think they're both really good things. Reinvestment in an asset like the post office. I mean, I don't know if anyone ever toured it, but I toured it before, um, and it was a fire waiting to happen. There was a woman who was the caretaker of the old post office, and she sat in an office in there just to make sure that fires didn't happen. It was so abandoned. And so what they did was excellent, right? And it will get there, and it'll revitalize that neighborhood. It's just going to take time. And it's equally as good when a new developer who wants to put up something shiny and new does it in a way that promotes that as well. I think they're both really good things. How much more is lean platinum costing you? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Now you're like, oh, <laughs> oh boy, it's well, it's it's it's, a, it's definitely a premium. I mean, for something like that though, it's still all in cost to get to you know kind of a your completed core and shell uh, less than new construction. So, yes, the I mean, I mean the bird safing that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you mentioned Europe and definitely a market that is ahead of us. And, you know, we have today SEC rulings that are on the table that could change the face of how people have to track their carbon and their impact. Um, you know, how will that impact what you all do and how you're speaking to your clients? Because I think it might be one of those things that could sneak up on us. Mm. I think for the for the big project we're doing with Google, they are planning for that. So, I, and for the stuff we do with like hotels and other things, without without that kind of huge corporate user, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think we, that would apply to us. But definitely the the for the big guy, they're they're planning for it. I I went down to a Cornet uh, a symposium down in North Carolina, and they had a futurist come in and talk about you know what's going to be mandated over the next X amount of decades. And he was saying, it's just not going to be worth it for like 40% of the buildings that exist right now. They're just going to be bulldozed, <laughs> you know? And, and so that, who knows if that'll come to fruition, but you know, you start thinking about that and it's like, wow, <laughs> you know? So does that take care of some of the oversupply of <laughs> maybe, but what goes in its place, you know, that's, but it's, it's pretty far reaching. I mean, it, it largely comes down to money too, because, you know, any investment that's going to be made into the building to accommodate all these things needs to be substantiated by tenants who can pay the rent. Mm -hmm. And at least so far, and this is going to oversimplify it, but tenants are really only attracted to things that they can understand. So a long drawn out brochure as to all the different appeals and all the different things you're accomplishing mentally by doing all these things is way harder for a tenant to buy into than I'm near the train, I got a good view, and I like the rate. I think you're right. That means rents are too low. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else from the crowd? So does it, does it feel like Chicago is behind the overall mission? You know, I think, I think it's abundantly clear what the people in this room, for example, would love to see happen. Does it feel like the city helps or in more cases than not can almost be obstructionist in some ways? We're kind of in a bit of a pause. I'm, and I'd like to stay optimistic that... But I, I think that the administration, that um, not enough time has passed, at least for us, to be clear on what the priorities are. So I think we're ready to move on a lot of these 
projects, these revitalization projects, but we need them, you know, we need to make sure the funding is there and that it it's moves. a priority. So, I mean, we're, we're poised and ready to go, but um, I think the opportunity is there for them to be supportive. I, we don't know yet. I just think there has to be some longevity and, and sustainability to whatever we do for Chicago. I was uh, talking to Todd Lippman the other day, and he um, represents Salesforce, and so Salesforce had this global symposium in San Francisco. And it's like, went to the mayor, and it's like, if you don't get this place cleaned up for this global symposium, it's never coming back here again. And he said it was amazing. It's like, people say, wow, this is what San Francisco used to be like. And then a week later, it was the same. You know, so it, it just can't be a fix up your house because guests are coming for Christmas. It's like, um, you know, let's, and, uh, you know, and there's so many wonderful organizations that believe in this city. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Chicago Loop Alliance, if you don't know about them or their mission, I mean, they're, they're some of our, one of our best sounding boards for, um, for Chicago and the programs they do. And, you know, it's, it's that's these civic-minded groups that support and love Chicago is what we need more of, and we need more support for organizations like that. I think Chicago needs to hire a marketing firm. Dan, get out yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I and think to promote a, that, I think that's, marketing folks I think right the message needs to change, and we need a boost, and we need to um, give people permission to come back and enjoy the city. Um, and tell them why and be honest with them and say, you know, it's for your livelihood, it's for our livelihood, it's for your kids' livelihood, and you should come back and be part of that. Yeah, Fox News likes to pick on Chicago more than anyone else. <laughs> um, so you just got to gotta deal with that and just kind of keep the, keep the positive items going forward. But, yeah, I mean, definitely any project we do, you know, there's, you know, five to ten years that we're, you know, committing resources to. And I, I think you're right about the longevity. The... the, the you know, the, the community, the city has to, you know, be able to, you know, make a similarly, a, a, a commitment with a similar duration, you know, to, so we can you know, kind of build something together that you know, makes the city a better place. I mean, I personally hope that, that our new mayor is in office a long time because that's right. what this city needs. It needs stability, you know, and um, he's got a lot of great ideas and... It's a lot. It's going to cost a lot of money, but in order for that to happen, we all need to work together to make um, Chicago, especially the Loop, the vibrant, attractive place that it has been for a long time, and I think will be. We'll open it up to any final thoughts from the group, but that's it from us. Otherwise, appreciate everybody's participation Thank you. today. Thank you. Thank you.